You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. Hey, welcome back to Twibbly, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, he don't drink, he don't smoke. What do he do? It's Jeff McLarge-Huge. Yeah. <laughs> Sudden innuendos follow, yes. Must, uh, be. must be something must inside. Must be something inside, yeah. How's it going? You all right? I'm you, all right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you feeling better this week? Are we happy? I, are we having a good day uh, today? I'm much happier this week. It's... It's almost February, my most favorite time of the year to what? think to wish it was another time of the year. So <laughs> I know at this point we're coming we're we're starting to look down the it's like the like the Olympics, right? You're looking down the end of the luge track at the end of the run. So mm-hmm. we got about another like four turns and then we're out of this and back into springtime. So Yeah, yeah. And New England typically has that third week in in uh in January where yeah. it's like, Hey, guess it's- what? 70 yep. degrees. Hey, it's nice. I mean, everybody everybody gets the flu from the, yeah. the rapid temperature change because their blood isn't thick or some shit. And then, right. uh, and, then, and then all of a sudden, it's 150 degrees below zero again, and you can't take the animals out for a walk. And then all of a sudden, it's March, and it's 50 degrees on one day, and then it's snowing and 100 degrees below zero the next day, and then vice versa, and then it snows on Easter. Yes. It's great. <laughs> exactly like being on a luge. Yeah. <laughs> cold, hot, hot, cold. Wet, dry, snowy, not snowy. I know. I, it's about a wonder when living in New England, like windows don't shatter more often from the the rapid temperature changes. I, I tell you what, every now and then I just look out my window and I half expect to see one of my neighbors just running, just going, <laughs> just running up the street in the snow, like with no shirt on because they've just finally snapped from the winter, the darkness and the cold and the wind and the no trees and the... Cabin fever, you know, like the shining, cabin, yeah. And the cabin, yeah, cabin fever. It's been especially difficult this winter, too, you know? It's like yeah. places aren't open, you can't go as many places, you can't do as much stuff, and it's like pretty soon we're all, you know, everybody turns into MacReady from the thing. No one trusts anyone. No, I'm going to turn into Jack Torrance. Like, I'm just like waiting just to like look down the hallway of my house and see some guy getting blown by one of the Beatles. How <laughs> I am the walrus. Great party, isn't it? Great. <laughs> yeah, well, anyway, yes, I am feeling much, much, much better than I was last week. Less, less work-related stress, so that's always a good thing. So a couple of years ago, like, I don't really own a lot of winter clothes. You know, I have jeans and I have sweatpants and I have shorts and little else. So it was, we had a lot of snow. So I had to go out there with the snowblower and all that. I have these pair of pants that I wear for the, the haunted house costumes. And they're yep. big, thick, heavy wool pants. And they're red and white stripes, right? 
Mm-hmm. But I don't care. I'm not out there for a fashion show. I got to run the snowboard. Right. Whatever. I'm out there these uh, bright red and white striped pants. A couple of months later, this guy that I work with, he has a side business that he builds fences, right? Right. Uh, he was actually doing a fence for somebody that lives backyard to me. He was like, oh, yeah, you see that blue house over there? Uh, that's my that's my friend Bill. I've been working with him for like you know x amount of years, and they're like, oh yeah, we uh we know who he is. I don't we don't really know him that well, but I know who you're talking about. Um, <laughs> they go, is he um, is he a circus clown or something? <laughs> and the guy says, uh, Bill is a lot of things, but a circus clown is not one of them. But you know what? He would be one yep. if that was a potential career choice. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. If if juggling was something that I could have pulled off learning how to do, yeah, I would have been right there. My God, can you imagine these poor people who think they're living next door to uh, a rodeo clown, right? And then this summer, I'm riding around the neighborhood on a unicycle. They must think I'm out of my mind. I, if I were you, yeah, the next time I went out there to do the old move the snow with the snowblower, I would make sure that I was in full clown regalia. Oh, I'm buying, yeah, it. I'm going to buy a big red nose. A rainbow wig, the whole nine yards. Like, oh, I don't, I, you think I don't have a rainbow wig? Of course I do. I, I, I know you do. I don't wasn't <laughs> saying you have to buy one, but you can put a bunch of balloons on the, you know, tie a bunch of balloons to the to the snowblower that are going to be up blowing over your head. That's, I think that's genius, Bill. I'm going to buy one of those big bulb horns so that whenever the cars go by, I can honk at them. <laughs> I think that's a great idea too. Okay. Uh, before we get the show started, of course, I have my insanely hard trivia questions for you and the like. Today's trivia question is brought to you by the letter G. Which city in the world is the oldest continuously inhabited city? You just said the letter G. Is that a hint? No. Does the city's name contain letters? It contains several letters. And Technically, so- then that's a hint. And some of them are vowels. All right. Well, we'll have to get back to you at the end of the show. All right. And see what we can figure out. Okay, so this is the week beginning January the 25th. And whose turn is it? All right, we'll let you start. January 25th, 1921. Czechoslovakian playwright named Karl Chapek publish, uh, publishes and and has performed a play called R-U-R. It yes, in I am. And that, that acronym stands for Rosen's Universal Robots. And it's the first time the word robot sort of was invented, had ever been used... And it was used to describe robots as they would come to be known pretty much from then on. Mm. Humanoid uh, working automatons that ultimately turn on their creators. That that part is not always the same thing. But that's what the play is about. And that's where that's where we actually get that literary trope from that single play in 1921. That's so awesome that the, like robots weren't even invented yet. They were invented as a piece of science fiction. And the first right. thing they do is go awry and kill everybody. It's like, can you imagine somebody that built like an actual first robot? They must have thought he was crazy. Right. Don't do that. Don't do it. Don't turn it on. What are you talking about? All I can do is walk and smoke cigarettes and move a vacuum cleaner. You know, that's the... That's what Electro used to do in the 1930s. That's uh, what Rosie used to do on the Jetsons. What, what always what always surprised me was how fast that word got adopted. Like, robot got adopted. Like, I want to snap my fingers. Like, right mm-hmm. away. It's a good thing he, his second play... Which he sh- he didn't he didn't name it this, but he should have he should have named it Klebold Universal Kleenex because then the dude would have been like a jillionaire. <laughs> he should, his next one he should have been called Is you is or is you ain't my baby. <laughs> At any rate, his play influenced uh, especially um, the German cinema. Again, this is a couple of years only before Metropolis was made. Uh-huh. 
where the the idea of the of the robot that can take the place of a person is literally uh, goes out across the world in film. So Fritz Lang sort of takes the ideas part from play and then boof, off it goes and becomes a, a, something in the zeitgeist that is still there today. I have one of those robot vacuum cleaners. It's like I've never had a roommate, but it may as well be at this point. <laughs> Right, because it it does way it just, does way more work than I do. Just I'll just leave. I just just spill Doritos on the floor for it. Like, go here yeah, you yeah. go, um, here you go. It likes to eat. It yeah. needs to eat. It likes Doritos. Uh, my my friend has one of those, and you can name it inside the app. And he named it Rosie. You know, like Rosie the robot from the uh, Jetsons that we yes. just mentioned. I called mine Dummy. I wasn't thinking named it after Rosie O'Donnell, <laughs> the comedian. Yeah. No, I, and I named mine Dummy after the the. The robot from Iron Man. Uh-huh. Yep. Yeah, I come home from work and I'm always, you know, hey, dummy, where are you? Because if dummy's not on his port, dummy got lost somewhere. Ah, uh, uh, nice. I, I I never have considered buying one of those only because I'm such a persnickety housekeeper about stuff. It's like, look, I'll vacuum. I'll just do it. You know, I don't want to delegate. I don't want to delegate the work to something that's just going to sort of zoom around on the floor and not do as good a job as I would do in five minutes. You will learn to hate your own guts if you get one of those. I never realized how much like dust and dirt accumulates in 24 hours. You know, you run the vacuum cleaner like me. I'm a slob, so I run the vacuum cleaner like once a week. It's like, oh, that's kind of a lot of dirt. But do it like every day with the little like with dummy. Yeah. Oh my god, it's like I I just did this like 24 hours ago when it's 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 all full of like lint and dust and. Ugh. Well, I mean, I have a dog, so well, mine is always, you know, filling up with dog hair, yeah, among other things. Right. But a, a, another thing that I don't want to do is have to deal with that. Like, oh, yeah. like I already have problems <laughs> not continuously cleaning my house. Like, I don't want to make it worse. Like, I got to get it done before the robot gets it. I don't want the robot to think I'm a shitty house cleaner. <laughs> you know, you're home and all that. So yeah. for me, it, it runs while I'm at work. So I come home and it's like, ooh, I'm like the, uh, the, the cobbler and the elves. Like, I wake up and all the shoes are done. I come home from work and... <laughs> The floor's nice and clean. Oh, spotless, yeah. And then, wow. Yeah. And nice. Dummy is stuck on a pile of books somewhere. <laughs> what you what you need is like is the next thing down the road will be that, but it'll be tied to like a holographic girlfriend or boyfriend, mm-hmm. right? Like in uh Blade Runner twenty forty eight. Yeah. Where it's like, I made you an invisible plate of food. And puts it on the plate in front of you. It's like, yeah, it's nice. It's nice to nice to come home to you there, hologram girlfriend. Yep. Or like like uh, uh, Mr. Plankton's computer wife in, in SpongeBob SquarePants. Yes. <laughs> All right. Let's go on to anyway. uh, January the 26th. Oh, wait. There's one more. There's one more thing that we have to mention okay. on January 25th. Okay. In, in 1980, human zombie Paul McCartney is released from a Tokyo jail and deported <laughs> after being charged with having marijuana. And lived to tell about it. He was still alive, oh, did he? much to the chagrin of those who knew him when he died in the 1960s. All right. So moving on to January the 26th. Rest in peace, Paul McCartney. January 26th, 1960. High school basketball superstar Danny Heater scores 135 points in a single game. Whoa. That's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot of points. Yeah. Like. What's does that break down in a in the was it all baskets was it all, that's before the three point rule so uh, like what was the what's the breakdown of, of how he he managed such a monster score in a single were, were they even playing against another team yeah were they playing against another team I know I don't think I could get 135 points like by myself like with nobody right. else on the court what's even funnier about this is this wasn't even your standard 15 minute quarter basketball game. 
This was eight minute quarters. This is a thirty two minute game. Get get out of Jesus. Right? Okay. So Heater gets fifty three baskets, or a field goal, as it says. Right. Whoa. He gets fifty three. He yes. shot seventy, but he got fifty three of them, and <laughs> and then he he shot. 41 free throws, but he got 29 of them. 41 free throws. What the hell were they doing to this guy? He must. He, he did this in a in a 32 minute game. This is. I would love to see this game. This is ambitious. 41 free throws. <laughs> That's like. How do you even do that in thirty in a thirty-two minute game? Exactly. He also got, managed to get thirty-two rebounds and dished out seven assists during the game. Thirty-two rebounds, like every minute, is a rebound. It's that's insane. <laughs> that's just madness. Yep. Maybe he was so tall he could just stand there and just put the ball through the basket one hand to the other like twenty times before the referee finally caught on. It was like, <laughs> uh, I mean, he, and they let him keep the point. He wasn't freakishly tall. He was he was six feet, which is uh you know formidable. Was he playing against the, another team of high school kids, or were they like kindergartners? Yeah, yeah well, it was uh, Wyden High School of Clay County, West Virginia, was the the team that just got taken to bitch school. And then wow, um, uh, your friend and mine, uh, Danny Heater, he was 17 years old. At, uh, he was a 17-year-old senior at Burnsville High School in Braxton County, West Virginia. How many baskets, how many shots did he shoot? 70. Per minute. Uh, uh no, but per minute, it would have been like two shots a minute minimum, plus the time no, to set no, up. Seven, like, seventy shots in thirty-two minutes. Yeah, that's one every thirty seconds. Yeah, it's one every thirty seconds. That's not including the time it takes to set up a free yeah, throw. Less than less than one every thirty seconds. I find I'm growing increasingly skeptical of the math <laughs> that this game was only thirty-two minutes long. I just don't know that it's I don't know that it's possible to to score that much in that few that amount of time. You, you know what's not listed here on the on the on the write up of this is what the final score of that game was. Right, right. I can only imagine. Well, if you've got seven assists, there's at least fourteen more points on the board. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah, quite, yeah. So I I wonder I wonder what it was like three hundred and eighty five to two. You know, the other team just left after the jump ball. Like, all right, we're out of here. I mean, what was the size of the court? Like the size of like my room? It's like 12 feet long, you know? <laughs> right. Were they playing with Nerf? <laughs> they using those like indoor Nerf things? Wow. I, I mean, I don't know how many high school basketball games you've been to. I don't think I went to any, but I can't imagine what the score was on the other team. Like, did they get any? <laughs> what, what, what I think is like, how, they're playing that fast. They must have just looked like, it must have just looked like a smear of people. <laughs> Going back and forth among the court in high school, they they like shove the they, they must have shoved the cheerleaders out like, all right, and they're like, give me a T, all right, f- it, get them off of there, <laughs> boom, and then off the run. They were gonna be in and out of this game in under an hour, you know. Uh, oh God, I went to get a hot dog and I scored seventy four <laughs> points. Holy, sh- all right. <laughs> January twenty seventh, nineteen forty eight, in a segment that we should call "Things We Found After World War II that we ended up making commercially available to the United States. Um, Ampex, the it was an engine company, begins to sell the first commercial tape recorder, not only for home recording but also for commercial recording using magnetic tape. These which, are like the reel-to-reel ones at that time. I'm gonna guess these are indeed the reel-to-reel magnetic tape. These are the, the and and they the technology came from stuff that they found in the in the ruins of Germany after World War II during the Marshall Plan rebuilding. Yep. They found these prototypes of what were called magnetophones, brought them back, and were like, "Hey, these work pretty good. I bet we could make these." And boop, there you go. Uh, Ampex is still a brand of of commercial tape recorders that's used today in record in the recording yep. industry. 
and it was duplicated many times and shrunk down and there are different formats and stuff but the very first ones that came out they were sold both to professionals and to people so that they could record their like favorite radio programs go figure home taping is not something that begins and ends with vhs it started when people still only had radios and would have bought this monstrous cabinet-sized electricity gobbling (laughs) monster to uh record you know charlie mccarthy and edgar bergen (laughs) My mom had one of those uh, those reel-to-reels. Whenever I first started with bands, I like commandeered it from my mom because it was it was capable of multi-tracking. It was capable of doing four capable track. of doing four tracks. So yeah, we recorded stuff with that. And my God, whenever I was a little kid, like I got a tape recorder, like a cassette tape recorder. You know, from Radio Shack. You know what I'm talking about, right? Yes, I had one too. Yep. I got one of the, you know, with a little handle on it and uh, the microphone. Yep. Couldn't have made me any happier. That was my favorite toy when I was a kid. I used to record these like little shows. And then I figured out that if you press record, play, and fast forward at the same time, it would make the tape record fast. So whenever you play it back, it sounded like like a monster movie. I had one like that too. It was one of those, you have it, you're like, I can do so many things with this. And then I didn't do anything <laughs> with it except listen to tapes through a single speaker. But it's an amazing thing to think of. Like I used it, the one that I had, I also was able to connect to my TI-99 4A. Oh, Jesus, yeah. So I could save programs yeah. or spool out programs in after a period of 20 minutes of playing right, a tape. yeah. I could use a word processor or some other thing. So it's neat. It's neat technology, and it hasn't changed much since whenever Ampex first put it out. Admittedly, magnetic tape is more sophisticated yeah. now. But you know, I completely forgot all uh, about that. You know, tiny little young people listening, you know, with your with your crazy, wacky, solid-state drives and your hard drives and all that stuff. Whenever computers first came home, that's how we used to save programs, is you actually saved them on an audio tape. And I remember... The early CNC machines that we worked with at school, we saved the programs on audio tape, too. Oh, we, as I feel like we're going to do the four Yorkshiremen sketch here. It's like, magnetic tape for the machines at school. Ha, ha, ha. We had paper punch oh, tape, yeah, yeah. you know. Oh, back in my day, we had punch cards. Oh, yeah. You know, back in my day, we just yelled at the sky. <laughs> but uh, this ac- actually, yeah. sitting on my desk in front of me is a stack of five or six audio cassettes. Listen. The f- familiar sound of audio cassettes. That is a familiar yep. sound of audio I have cassettes, a, yes. I have a, a number of tapes over here that I've been meaning to digitize, but like I think I said a couple of weeks ago that I uh, I just had to build a new computer, so I don't have the the, digiti, the digitizing uh, stuff set up just yet, but the, the cassettes uh, are just sitting there like threatening me, mm-hmm. or I'm threatening them. I'm going to digitize you and then throw you in the garbage. Into the trash. All right, so moving on to the 28th. Now, this is not an upbeat story. I do like to gear the show towards the the positive or the neutral or the ridiculous. But this uh, this is not a a positive story. But for Generation X, this is a where were you when that happened, kind of like the baby boomers whenever John Kennedy was killed. So anyway, January 28th, 1986... Space Shuttle Challenger, upon liftoff, maybe about 90 seconds in, experiences uh, a problem and explodes, uh, killing all seven astronauts on board. Yeah, including Krista McAuliffe, who was the first civilian in space, the first teacher in space. 
Um, she was from Concord, yep. New Hampshire. Yep, yep. I remember right that. Here. She was. Yep. There's a school named after her uh, here in uh, Concord. So, Bill, where were you when the space shuttle Challenger hit that 73 second mark and turned into that iconic cloud with the two rockets sort of spiraling off into? Everybody that I talked to seems to. You know, remember watching it in school. I did not watch it in school. I actually did not see it when it happened. Uh, I was homesick that day. A likely story, as we say. I used to get bronchitis really bad. And I was watching... I remember I was watching Sesame Street because it had been a long time since I had watched Sesame Street. So I was sitting there watching it. I was, you know... But my mom came, like, busting into the room. And she was like, the space shuttle just blew up. I This is weird, but I kind of, like, started laughing. She's like, no, it blew up. It's not funny. I'm like... What are you talking about? And then I turned the the channel over and it was like, wow. Yeah. That was the 25th space shuttle mission. And that was the first one that experienced big, big problems. Like the whole, whole, uh, you know, NASA uh, rockets and then space shuttle programs. You know, Apollo 13 almost got stuck. You know, on the other side of the moon, and there was that other one. I don't want. I don't think it was Apollo nine. I think it was maybe it was Apollo seven. The one that like went straight up and then went straight back down. It just it barely made it past the launch pad. But there wasn't really a lot of like bad things that happened with the uh, with the space program, and that space shuttle Challenger. Yeah, really sent it home. Like things can happen. <laughs> for for me, I was I was one of the ones that watched it in school. We were, I was in Bill and I both went to a trade school. A yep. vocational school and i was in a class related to science for that trade so machine shop science and we'd spent the preamble of the launch talking about how tolerances are important and you know you can't do things like launch the space shuttle if people aren't paying attention to the tolerances reg- related to the pieces that make up the space shuttle and that ultimately whenever something fails it will inevitably come down to an, an oversight or carelessness with regard to tolerance whether it's one thousandth of an inch a one hundred thousandth of an inch it doesn't matter so we're watching we watch the shuttle go up and there's the explosion and the two rockets shoot off and there's about a minute where even the commentators are like well that's unusual that's not what the separation typically looks like right so that's kind of what's going on everybody's very quiet i wish i could remember the guy's name the guy sitting next to me goes well some machinist is going to get his ass chewed out for this (laughs) which was i mean at the time was like terrible but also very funny yeah it's a tension tension Um, breaker right in the years since, uh, in my career as an instructional designer, there's a guy that I learned a lot from named Ed Tufty, and he has the actual report that they had NASA had given to one to President Reagan's um, administration that basically was meant to say, don't launch the shuttle, we think the O-rings are going to blow up, or going to cause it to blow up. But the title of the document was something like, Concerns about the integrity of the O-rings and the outside of the space shuttles, supplementary fuel tanks, and booster rockets. For your consideration, which Reagan or somebody in Reagan's cabinet read was like, yeah, whatever that is. Okay, put it aside. And then up it goes and kaboom. Where if they had been more concise with their wording, like if you launch the shuttle, you're going to kill the first teacher in space. They probably wouldn't have sent it up. It was meant to coincide with this uh, State of the Union address. There was something else too, like two, two other things about that, about that launch that are like little known facts. One, not only was there the first you know, teacher in space is what they make the big deal out of. But there was another astronaut on there. His name was Ronald McNair. He was not, in addition to being an astronaut, he was also a musician, played the saxophone, and he brought his saxophone with him. 
and a portable recording studio, and he was going to make the first musical recording in space. And, you know, for someone like me, very bottom tier uh, level musician and, you know, music fan, uh, the fact that that never got to happen is uh, is is a huge loss i think you know that's that that's a that, it's noteworthy ha noteworthy that is noteworthy and and it brings to mind like i don't know if you remember the it wasn't too long ago the video of the the astronaut on the international space station uh, when david bowie passed away doing space oddity in zero g yes you know what uh, another thing about that challenger was the original plan wasn't to send a teacher up in space, they were actually going to launch Big Bird and Carol Spinney were going to be on that space shuttle. They would have needed an extra big space yeah, shuttle. Yeah, isn't that something? I mean, an extra big spacesuit for that guy. Yeah. Especially for his arm. Yeah, exactly. With the, big Bird's head. But, oh my, I mean, the tragedy of the Challenger just would have right. been like multiplied so much if there was if there was a Big Bird up on there. Just everybody's childhood just being... Uh, all right, so this is re- this is really dark and depressing. Let's let's get on to the next thing. Something a little more. Uh, All right, no problem. Please. Here's what we're, we're gonna not. do. We're gonna talk about the end of the world. How's that? Oh, great. <laughs> the end of the world, as imagined in, uh, by a mathematician, and I'm beginning to say that with air quotes, uh, in 1594. So we're at the apex of where mathematics okay. really uh, solves problems. January 29th, 1594. A mathematician named John Napier okay. dedicates his paper and his theorem. I'm going to say this with quotes so that you know that it's the uh, the title. Plain discovery of the whole revelation of St. John. He dedicates that to King James VI and predicts that the end of the world would take place in either 1688 or 1700. So not only is he t- talking tolerances now, not only is he talking about 100 years in the future, but he's also got a 12-year span where it may or may not happen. And obviously it didn't. But <laughs> his tolerance is plus or minus six years. People have been running this scam on other people f- since at least 1594. And been able oh, to sure. generate. I'm sure that, you know, mathematician John Napier is doing most of his math- mathematics going like, oh, Well, I've been given one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten gold coins. One, two, three, four, five, 17 silver coins. And counting all the money that he made from <laughs> selling his, his revelation of St. John paper to the gullible masses of King James the Sixth's England. Right. And it's like, well, it, it was like 80 years from when he had predicted. It's not like somebody went, that right. son of a bitch. Right. Exactly. I've been hornswoggled. And, and I'm sure that the pitch was like, if you send me a rabbit pelt and two turnips now, I will send you this prayer cloth. You know? <laughs> but I don't know. But people have been running this, running this scam. Like they still run it today. You can turn on the TV today, the CBN network, and listen to people say like, if... If you just give us $5, we know the world's going to end, you know, in the indeterminate near future with a 12-year span, and I'll send you this little vial of olive oil, you know? And it's just, oh, it's, uh, you'd think we'd learn. There was one in the, in the 90s. It was October of 1992, and there was some monks that had predicted that the world was going to end October of 92, and they got a lot of people on board with this one. Selling all and their people stuff. People were like yeah. selling. Waiting for, yeah, dumb. And the world was going to end and then uh, it was October of 1992, and I, I don't remember the world ending. I do remember I went see Faith No More that <laughs> month. It was on my birthday. That was, pre- and that, that was, was that. that was pretty cool. So faith yeah. No More necessary. And then of course the 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 the, uh, the calendar there right. in 2012. Yes, those those cagey Mayans. Was it the, yes. the Mayan? Yeah, the Mayan look, calendar ends look, it in says, 2012. It's like 
Yeah, my calendar ends every December. I just go get another calendar. Okay, start carving the next one because this one we're gonna get need to get another one. You know, it's like <laughs> buying a ten year calendar. Like, oh, I don't have to worry about this calendar for ten years. Yep. And the minds were like, ten years. Look, dude, we're gonna go all the way to 2012. We're not even gonna be a people anymore by then, but that's okay because if we still are, we can make a new one. You know what happened was uh, in in 2013 they had the sexy Mayan of the month calendar that came out. Yes, I'm sure that the Mayan like puppies of the Mayan <laughs> Empire was a big seller too, right around the holidays, right around like Quetzalcoatl's birthday. You know? <laughs> so that's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. So January 30th, 1969, the Beatles. Uh, now, this is shortly after Paul McCartney did not die. Um, it's true. No, wait, this is slightly before he did not die because he died somewhere. In this. Uh, the Beatles play what is uh, basically their last concert ever yep. on top on top of the Apple building, the yes. Apple Corps, as they called it. Yep. Uh, it was a 42-minute concert, very famous because... That's where the video you know, for Get Back came from, Why? Well, not yep. the video that we call it now, but that was where they made a film of it. Right. That's, uh, I mean, U2 recreated it with the Streets Have No Name video. and Except um, they kept doing shows, those cheap punks from Italy, <laughs> Ireland, 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 Italy, whatever they are. Ireland. Now, that was, uh, the like I said, the last show that the Beatles, uh, last performance that the Beatles ever did uh, together. Four years later, like the phoenix rising from the ashes, uh, same day, January 30th, 1973, KISS performs their first show in New York City. Oh, that was at the Coventry Club, right? Yes. When they started, they played like dressed like mimes, didn't they? Was that, Just about, did they, yeah. Did they always do the makeup thing? They all, they did the makeup. I mean, well, the, the, it, was almost like, it almost looked like they were in drag. I mean, their looks evolved drastically over the yeah. early, early, early years. Paul Stanley, for one show... Instead of having a star over his eye, he had almost like bandit-like makeup. And you can still see some pictures of that. But, I mean, I've seen pictures from, like, before Ace Freely joined the band, even. And they were in, they were dressed like, oh. they would have been like the noisiest mimes in New York. But Yeah, that's they, not, they uh, that's not Kiss. That would be Wicked Lester. Oh, okay. That was the band that uh, Gene and Paul were in before Kiss. Oh, I see. That name was terrible. They should have been just called the Noisy Mimes. That would have been way better. <laughs> what I'm saying is Kiss is the Beatles, is what I'm saying. Uh, oh. That's <laughs> well. They both have one principal songwriter named yes. Paul. Ah, and he's not dead. So and he's that. not dead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they so. both have a drummer with limited skills. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Who's probably has the best, some of the better songs of the band? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Isn't that something? Yes. Um, uh, when they're, I they're, think they're... the Beatles, I immediately think "Act Naturally." <laughs> That's actually one of my favorite songs for them. The people don't want to admit it, but there are a lot of parallel lines with the Beatles and Kiss. Well, okay, so there's there's the Apple Corps building, yeah. and there's the Kiss Army. So they're both military, obviously. Right. Yep. But I mean, think about it: the bass player and the rhythm guitar player are the principal songwriters for the band for both the Beatles and for Kiss. Yes. Um, in both bands, it's a rarity if you think about it. In both bands, all four members share vocal duties. And the lead guitarist for each band probably submits a ton of songs for every record, only lands one. <laughs> yeah, basically. Or yeah. two. Yeah. You know? And it turns out, ironically enough, that their solo records are better than the stuff that they do in their Kiss records sometimes. Yep, absolutely. Yep. So there you go. Ace Freely is a Harry Krishna. 
<laughs> and well, um, the Beatles released the White Album, which is not my favorite of their albums at all. And, and Kiss released Kiss, the Elder, which <laughs> <laughs> no, and Kiss released Double Platinum. Colors, oh, yes, colors, okay. colors. Yeah. Yes, colors, colors. Well, I was going to just say for bad albums as far. As oh yeah, uh, the Elder is not as bad as you think. It, this it's not the worst Kiss album. Let's put it that it's, way. It's not the worst Kiss album, but it's the one that I looked forward to the most and bought and was like. Eh, maybe I oh, listened a little too much to Gene Simmons. That is the Phantom Menace of the Kiss albums for sure. Right. <laughs> All right, and wrap up the uh, the week. What do we got? January thirty first, nineteen ninety nine. A show that would go on to become a humongous juggernaut after an initial scary first run. Seth MacFarlane's Family Guy first airs on Fox. Originally critically panned as a just a cheapo knockoff of The Simpsons, it sort of came into its own after being canceled and then resurrected. Right. It was on for two like two seasons and then it got canceled. Right. They made the the DVDs available yep. of the two and, seasons. I remember they, I was dating this girl. She wanted to buy that for her roommate for Christmas, and I had to go pick it up because she was busy. And I just remember sitting there and watching it and watch, you know, watching all the episodes and dying laughing at this, like, cockroach with a knife that said, I'm going to cut you so bad, you're going to wish I didn't cut you so bad. It's like it was the DVD sales that led yeah. to that show being resurrected. Like, it was right. no, no one at Fox thought that the show would sell, and it sold trillion, million, billion, zillion copies of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because of that, they thought like, holy mackerel, like people really like like this. The critics hated it, but like this this thing had an audience. Yep. Uh way beyond what they thought there was for the broadcast the broadcast TV. Again, this is the cable TV, so it's not the tracking methods for TV popularity are still way out of date in nineteen ninety nine. So they're still relying on people with Nielsen boxes who have three channels or four channels, right? <laughs> yep. So there's they, they can't see the number of people who've been watching the show until the DVDs go on sale. And they're like, we need to bring this back. Pretty much at that point, Seth MacFarlane could have said, like, I want to make another show called American Dad. And they're like, F- it, make it. And then I want to do a show like Star Trek. And I'm like, yeah, you, you know what? You go wild. That's actually how American Dad happened. Because yep. Family Guy had gotten canceled. So they went into production for another cartoon American Dad, and while they were still in production, Family Guy got repicked up. Renewed, and, yeah, yep. And then Seth MacFarlane basically has had carte blanche to do whatever the hell he wants since then. One of the first—that was one of the first shows that was playing on Adult Swim. Would have sold off the rights of the first two seasons to to um to Cartoon Network, sure. And we're getting huge, huge numbers at night when that show was on too. And then when it came back to Fox, it would air on Fox, and then that same night, the same episode would air on Cartoon Network. Yeah. Yeah, and Family Guy still on to this day. Seth MacFarlane, not all that long ago, hosted Saturday Night Live a couple of months ago. That man has made a deal with the devil because he still looks exactly the same as he did, you know, 21 years ago. And that dude works his ass off. Like, not only did he do, like, he does a bunch of the voices on Family Guy and a bunch of the voices on American Dad, and he did voices on Cleveland Show. He also produced the remake of Cosmos, Hosted yep. by Neil deGrasse Tyson, and he's both the lead writer, the lead, the lead director, and the producer of the Orville, which has just finished up season three. Mm-hmm. And that's a, like a weekly science fiction show with like thirteen or fourteen episodes every season. Right. The, the Ted Ted one and two, and an underrated movie is the was a million ways to die in the West. Is that what it's called? Yes, he was in that one as well. All right, let's get on to the celebrity birthdays. January the 21st, 1953, a man by the name of Wayne Farris, who you would know him better as WWE superstar, the Honky Tonk Man. I remember that he had a guitar with no strings on it. Yep. That he used as a prop. 
Yep. And he dressed sort of like Elvis in his, uh, give me another one of them, peanut butter and banana sandwiches. Yeah, uh, in his Vegas days, yep. Uh, A couple of things about uh, the Honky Talk Man. As goofy as his gimmick is, one, he was a solid wrestler. Two, he's actually kind of a hard ass. Like, he'll kill you, you know? (laughs) As goofy as his gimmick was, he's nobody to, 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 to fuss with. Also, he is first cousins with Jerry the King Lawler. Oh. One of the things that I've learned, at least from hosting this podcast and maybe a little bit before, is that wrestling is more inbred than an Alabama family reunion. So, <laughs> like, they're like 17 families and all of their families all wrestle. Like, yes. And that's, oh, he's the like the British Bulldog and their father was a wrestler and, like, their uncle was a wrestler and their, and their great-grandmother sewed wrestling skirts or something for the ring. And, like, it, they're all, it's all tied into the same, like, 15 or 16 yeah. families. There's the Hart family and then there's also, I can't remember... The name of the family, but any Samoan wrestler, yep. they're all related. The Rock yep. is part of that Samoan family. All right, yep. moving on. Next up, January 26th of 1962, probably forgotten uh, rock and roller named Tom Kiefer is spawned upon the world. Now, you may not know him by name, and you may not know him by band name either. <laughs> <laughs> but of all the hair metal bands that shot to fame in the early years of MTV, they yep. were one of them. So that's he was he was the singer and the guitarist for Cinderella. Oh Jesus! Okay, that's who. Of all those bands, that's one of the ones that I liked. He had a very distinct voice. Yes. He sounds like a girl trying to do Peter Chris singing uh, "Hard Luck Woman." That's what he sounds like. <laughs> but that's that's all right because like that, those three things together work for me. And again, yeah, I like I like Cinderella's records. Yeah, you can't sing along with Cinderella you, without like hurting yourself. You yeah. What I remember about that uh, about Cinderella, uh, when they first came out, long before they had a video on MTV, somehow my friend Mark had heard about them, and we had gone down, and I was driving. We had gone down to the record store so that we could buy this cassette. Yeah, this band Cinderella. Blah 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 blah. Right. Right. It was a summer day. We're driving in my big ass blue. Mercury Cougar, and I had a car full of friends, right? Like five friends. Right. And we got all the windows down. Now, the the first song of the album was a lead single. It was called Shake Me. Yep. And I just remember driving up Route 6, like in between the mall and Stang over there. Yep. I just remember driving up, and every time the song said Shake Me, all my friends like leaned out the windows and just yelled out, Eat me. <laughs> so you had all these like oversexed 16 year old kids going, Eat me. Nice, nice. All right, so moving on to the 27th, another outstanding front man for a, uh, I'm not going to, I can't even call them a metal band because they they weren't. So January 27th, 1968, Mike Patton from Faith No More, also from Mr. Bungle. Oh, that dude's got a range in his voice, man. I remember when I was, when I was in college, I worked in the kitchen uh, as a dishwasher on Sunday afternoons and... I was in the UK, so I was listening to the UK Top 40. The Faith No More version of Easy, Easy Like Sunday Morning, was the yep. thing that knocked, for one week, it knocked Whitney Houston out of the number one spot. And, oh, uh, wow. Yeah, and it was a fanta- it's a fantastic song. Anyway, he's got a tremendous, tremendous voice for a person who looks like he's about three and a half feet tall. There's a there's a thing with frontmen, and this is uh, this is going to come up a little bit later on, too, with, with a, a, a front person for a band. They are either charismatic, good-looking, or they sing very well. And it's very rare that somebody's all three. Right. Roger Daltrey from The Who was all three. Right. And Mike Patton from 
Faith No More was all three, too. He is seriously probably my favorite front man. Mm-hmm. He just he, he commanded a stage so well. Yeah, know? I I liked him when I saw them. I saw them on the... Right. Oh, you must have saw him at Great Woods, right? Nope. I saw him at the Paradise Rock Club. Oh, wow. I saw them uh, a couple of... The days later at the at the living room in Providence. Yep, it was it was a phenomenal show. Yeah, it was it was phenomenal. And he does like a lot of like it's not just like the the rock stuff and the 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 funk fusion stuff with uh, Faith No More and Mr. Bungle. He also does like Italian lounge music and stuff. Yeah, he's he out does. There. He's, he's a weird cat. He, yeah, he does like everything. All right, moving on to the twenty eighth. What do you got? January 28th, 1981, uh, American actor Elijah Wood, uh, known for such roles as Frodo of the Nine Fingers in Lord of the Rings movies, mm-hmm. and a bunch of weird-ass movies around those movies. So he definitely did Lord of the Rings and made his made his nut, and now he does other things um, yeah. that are strange. Uh, weird-ass stuff like, like, I do not feel at home in this world anymore, which I don't know if you've ever seen that. That's a great movie that was made for Netflix with him. I was stunned that he was in it because it's such a teeny tiny little movie, but it was so good, and he's so good in that. And he was really good with a non-speaking character, that crazy Kevin guy in Sin City, and all kinds of like just weird, weird little weird movies. I like with him and the kid that played Harry Potter too. It's like they made all this money, you know, from their respective franchises. Right. They could just do whatever the hell they want now. He was involved. Elijah Wood was involved with the uh, the long-awaited Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency show too. Yeah, which was not good. Um, <laughs> I didn't get I, I didn't get a chance to see it. <laughs> you didn't miss anything. It it oh, has okay. about as much to do with the the Douglas Adams books as a book called "This Book Was Not Written by or Read by or Looked at by or Had Anything to Do with Douglas Adams." I like that he you know just does whatever the hell he wants. You know. Yep. Well, you know, remember last week when we talked about the worst song ever, right? Which is I hate to even say it because I've had the song stuck in my head like it's covered in spikes since then. But Miss American Pie by Don McLean. When asked what the song means, he goes, it means I wouldn't have to work again if I didn't want to. Right? Well, there you go. Moving on. All right. uh, January 29th, 1880, uh, vaudeville and early film comedian W.C. Fields. He was in the business from the very beginning, and he he made it all through the talkies, right? He made it up through the first couple years of the talkies. Very interesting guy. Well, here's a funny story. uh, I was out in California some years ago, and we went on one of those bus tours, and they took us by... W.C. Fields' house, and my brother and I knew so so much about him and early vaudeville comedians that we actually kind of took over comment uh, doing the commentary on the tour bus. Wow! Uh, you know, just telling different stories and stuff to the point where the bus driver said, "Okay, shut up because we got to go on to the next house." Oh, there you go. Yeah, nice. he used to sit on his front porch with a BB gun and shoot at children and dogs as they walked by. Nice. His gravestone says. All things considered, I'd rather be in Philadelphia. Because mm-hmm. he had a famous quote. He was like, oh, yes, Philadelphia. I spent a week there once. I think it was a Wednesday. Yep. My favorite W.C. Fields quote is, W.C. Fields was an atheist. On his deathbed, he spent his time reading the Bible. And somebody asked him, they said, if you're an atheist, why are you reading the Bible? And he says, I'm looking for a loophole. <laughs> All right, Very next cool. up. All right, January 30th, 1974, British actor this time, known for his role in Batman Begins and American Psycho, Christian Bale, is born in Haverford West, Pembrokeshire, in Wales. 
He also was in The Machinist, which you and I talked about a little bit earlier, where he lost like 150 pounds to play the main character in that movie. Yeah, for like two months, he ate nothing but like a can of tuna fish and an apple. That's it. For for like every day, yeah. I call it the uh, Christian Bale soon to be in the hospital with a heart attack diet. Follow me for more recipes. (laughs) For the movie Vice, where he played Dick Cheney, he gained like 100 pounds. Yeah, yes. And that's the sort of of weight on, weight off, weight on, weight off, muscle on, muscle off style that puts you in the grave at 60. Yeah, that doesn't make for a long life, yeah. Now, I was just thinking, like, I get out of work, I'm like, oh, I just want to relax. Here's a guy, you're not even working, you're getting ready for a role and you're starving yourself to death? This doesn't seem like it's part of the job. I wonder what people thought, like, is he he a method actor? Is he pretending to be a cat? Is that why he's only eating one can of tuna fish a day? Yeah, he puts the meth in method acting, I guess, right? right? And wrapping it up, uh, January the 31st, another one of my favorite front men, although he doesn't have the vocal range of... Mike Patton, that's for sure. And he doesn't have the vocal range of George S. Patton. <laughs> he doesn't have the vocal range of my vacuum cleaner robot. Or Michael um, Myers. But charisma galore right. is Johnny Rotten or John Lydon from the Sex Pistols and from Public Image Limited. Really, really, really uh, fun guy to watch in interviews, especially when he was young. There's this one uh, YouTube video I was watching where he was on like, it was almost like a, a, a talk show where they had, it was him, Joan Collins, and a few other people where they would play like the hits of the day and asking yep. them what they thought about it. And everyone was like, oh, I like this song. This is wonderful. And every time they came to Johnny Rotten, he would go, it's awful. Uh, <laughs> he, just took, yeah, he just took a crap all over whatever song they were playing. He just didn't yeah. like it. That definitely, that definitely fits his idiom. PIL never really took off here. But then again, I don't think the Sex Pistols did either. They didn't have anywhere near the influence they did here that they did in England. Right. Like their one tour here just crashed and didn't burn like the year 1688 to 1700 when the world ended. <laughs> um, or the robots turned on us in 1921. And after that, like one record and kind of that's it, right? Their yep. influence is much greater than their fame. And then when Public Image Limited, it was yeah. it was even more so. Like they were big in the in the in the sort of the club crowd in England, and kind of made it here on college radio before Nirvana killed off all the good music in 1991. Later on in life, Johnny Rotten got uh, meningitis. Meningitis, yeah, his brain yeah. swelled up. Yeah, and it uh, it destroyed a huge section of his memory. And he was trying to trying to write his autobiography, and it literally took him like years to even remember who his parents were. It must have been tough. Like you sit yeah. down, and I'm like, I've had writer's block, or you know, whatever that is. And yeah. I sit down, and my hands on the keyboard, and imagine I'm writing my autobiography. It's like January 31st, 1956. I am born today. I had pancakes for breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> Everything between bread, born and breakfast is gone. I had pancakes for breakfast. It I was awful. It's terrible. They were vicious. They were Sid Vicious. Wait, that, that reminds me of something. That reminds so. me. Sid Vicious, didn't he? I think he was responsible. He wrote... The worst song ever. All right, what is our contender this week? Young uh, Jeff for the worst song ever. Uh, I'm gonna get this out of the way early. There's a version of this worst song ever that I that I like, and you're gonna there's say more than one no, version of this song. No, there's there are f- multiple versions of this song. Of which, stop it. The one that we're gonna talk about is the only one that went to number one. Okay, but you know the people that recorded the other three versions. Okay, and you know them well. All right, stop being Hitchcock. There. What's the song? 
The song is I Write the Songs. Ooh. As recorded by Barry Adidas Sneakers Manilow. <laughs> Adidas, I love that story. Yes. Uh, and I'm actually going to shout out to my old babysitter who I think listens to this podcast. Like, I remember being a very little kid and waiting for the song to come around on the radio while we were like playing in the in the in the basement with my brothers and our in our like toy trucks and stuff. So my aunt Blanche, real French woman with that one there. My aunt Blanche loved this song and she like bought my brother and I the forty five, the single of it. Yeah. That's all. I remember having so, this song in my house, yeah. Yep. So so again the, the one that was the, the one that was super famous was the the Mandela one. That one went to number one. But only a year, maybe even less than a year earlier, this song went to number 13, as sung by David Cassidy. David Cassidy did a cover of this one? Yep. That one right. sounds a lot like Barry Manilow's cover, except it's not as well orchestrated. It has a nice Mellotron keyboard in the beginning of it, and it still sounds like David Cassidy, but it's the same beat structure. There's, there's no changes to it. It's even got the same piano chords, although they're done on a Mellotron. This song, I mean, it's... It's not me. I don't listen to this kind of music, okay? But I don't hate this song because uh, it like it, it's got nothing to do with me. But there's one part of this song that drives me freaking nuts, and it's this part right here. I, I write the songs, I write the songs. Oh, my music makes you dance and gives you spirit to take a chance. So, like, the rest of the song is all like, nah, 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 nah. and then it gets to that part, it goes, and I wrote some rock and roll so you can move. And then it goes yep. right back into the rest of, like, it just changes that beat, like, right there for a second. It's like, listen, Barry, all right, you don't rock, nor do you roll, okay? So, I'm going to I'm gonna take one for Barry here. I'm going okay. to leap in front of Barry and take the bullet. It's not him that did that in the song. It's the song itself. So in the David Cassidy version, it does the same thing. And in the version by the original author of the song, Bruce Johnson, who is a member of the Beach Boys, it does the same thing. His version is awful. One of the Beach Boys wrote this song? Yep. Oh, I didn't know that. It sounds like he's singing it inside of the bathroom at North Station with a piano that he borrowed from somebody that's out of tune. It's terrible. Now, he's not the ding-a-ling that wrote Kokomo, is he? Nope, that's Mike Love. Oh, Mike loves. <laughs> yeah, Bruce Bruce Johnson still tours with the Beach Boys. He doesn't recorded with them since like 1971, mm-hmm. and went out on his own and sold songs like this one. He still tours with them as a as a, I guess, keyboard player and stuff. Anyway, his version is awful. Manilow's version is Manilow's version. Cassidy's version is it's forgettable. But there's one version of this song that it's like the humps of the Loch Ness monster just breaking the surface of the loch. It touched the charts. It went to 38 and dropped off in the same two week period. Okay. And it's by frickin' Captain and Tennille, and it's awesome. <laughs> really? I'm not even kidding. It's it's friggin' amazingly good. It's really, really good. All right. She, I, Tony Tennille has an amazingly good voice, and, yes, and the piano that they do, the fill of the piano that, that the captain does is awesome. Uh, I'm not even kidding. Let's do it yeah. like 12 times today. All right. I, I, will, I will have to give that one a, a listen to as well. Uh, one thing that Barry Manilow said like a long time ago, uh, not – not 1975, but I think I he said it in the 80s. And it's one of those quotes that just stuck out in my head where he said, they told me 
back when I started that the life expectancy of a pop singer is five years. Yep. From the time you get your first hit to the time you are done, five years. And he says, and he well, did it all in three. <laughs> but <laughs> but he's still around. He's still touring. My friend and his wife actually just went see him not all that long ago, and they said he was fantastic. I'm going to put this out there. Like all those like 70s crooner guys still have that. They have that fan base that they generated from when I was a kid when this song was. I like I can hear three or four songs of his and go like, I know all the words to Mandy. I know all the words to Copacabana. I know all the words to this song because it's just part of my DNA from yeah. when this was on the radio. That's when my brain was at its biggest, spongiest point, I guess. Right. And probably why I'm not good at math is because it's full of friggin' Barry Manilow songs. But I remember him being embarrassed that this was his biggest hit at the time because he didn't write it. And ironically, it's I write the songs. Um, <laughs> all I can say, and, and I, I say this with complete like seriousness, thank the deity of your choosing that Debbie Boone never got her hands on this song <laughs> because it's already sort of straddling the line between being like an obnoxious white Protestant gospel pop music yep. and not. Bruce Johnson wrote it that way on purpose because he didn't want people to think he was writing about um, Brian Wilson from right. the Beach Boys. Because if you think about Brian Wilson from the Jesus Christ, this song's about Brian Wilson from the Beach Boys, but it's it's with just a few little changes. Yeah, yeah, and then, yeah. You think it's about Brian Wilson from the Beach Boys, and then you get to the end of this song, and it's like this M Night Shyamalan ending. It's like yes. yeah. I am well, I, music. That's who I am, and I write. Yeah, the song. and it's like the idea. That, yeah, that, but I mean, that's like he did that on purpose because he he was like, oh my god, everybody doesn't think I'm writing about Brian Wilson at the time. Brian Wilson has was like in the five thousand didgeridoos throws of mental illness right you know and had dropped out of the had dropped out of the beach boys and wasn't performing with them anymore so like it's it's got an interesting kind of history he was trying to find a new roommate because his was currently in prison right yes but like you know again i don't like the barry Manilow one so much although i still sing along with it when i hear it and i hear it surprisingly often on the radio i don't like the david cassidy one because it sounds like a cover tune even though it came before i friggin love the one that captain Intel did on their first record it's amazingly good you should I check it out I will. Uh, the first line in the song is, I've been alive forever. And yep. there is a city. Here's my trivia question. You forgot about it, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, I was hoping you'd forgotten about it. Yep. There is a city that has been the longest continuously inhabited city in the world. Where is it? Do I give you the name of the city or the name of the place where the city is now? Yes. <laughs> I am going to say, and I'm going to say this as if I was Ned Beatty talking to um, Gene Hackman as Lex Luthor. Addis Ababa, Mr. Luthor? No. <laughs> it, is, it is Damascus, Syria. Damascus, Syria. Wow. Yep. All right. There, I thought Addis Ababa had that beat, but I guess not. Yep. There is evidence in Damascus, Syria of civilization going back as far as 9000 BCE. Jeez. Which is a bit of a... That's almost 10,000 years in Jeff math. <laughs> that is 11,000 years ago in Jeff math, which is really going to you know knock the young earth creationists for a loop because they seem to think that the earth is only you know six or 7,000 years old. Well, <laughs> surprise, we get civilizations that are you know 50% longer. They, now with 50% more civilization. I mean, they get all their math from John Napier. You know, and folks like John Napier who are who are looking to fleece them out of their life savings because the world's going to end. So I'm not surprised that they think it's 6,000 years old. I predict that within the next 20 or 30 seconds, this podcast episode is going to come to an end. 
Uh, I'll take that bet. Sell everything. <laughs> Sell, I say. All right. That wraps it up for the, the week, guys. We'll see you next week. Say goodnight, Jeff. Goodnight, Jeff. All right. Bye, guys. Bye, everybody. Special thanks to James Costa for our theme music. Thank you so much for listening to Twibbly. This week was way better last year. You can follow and or message us over on Instagram or on Facebook at T-W-W-W-B-L-Y. Please subscribe if you haven't already. Make sure you tell your friends if you like our show. And if you don't like our show, tell your friends you did like it. It'll be a great prank you can play on them. Have a good week, guys.